Stevens Road Baptist Church podcast. Here you'll find our weekly teaching and more as we try to equip you to live out your faith everywhere and always. So in um, 1995, 1995, uh, a man by the name of uh, MacArthur Wheeler decided to rob a bank. Now he did so in the middle of the day with a bank full of people. He did so without a disguise, didn't wear a mask. He didn't avoid the security cameras. He brandished a firearm so all could see. And at 5'6", 270 pounds, he was not a challenging man to miss. So in short, he did everything wrong if you're planning on robbing a bank, which I would not recommend. The police had ample of images to work with. They took the best one that they had. They showed it on the 11 o'clock news. They began to receive tips on his identity almost immediately. Within an hour, they were at his front door ready to arrest him. When Wheeler opened the door to see the police there, he was shocked. He didn't understand how they could have possibly found him. Because, little did the rest of us know, he had a secret weapon in his arsenal. You see, and I'm quoting him now, he was wearing the juice. If that doesn't make any sense to you, that's okay. See, Wheeler made a strange jump in logic. I don't know how many of you have ever had this as a, as a thing you might do with children, but lemon juice is invisible ink. You, you write it on paper, and it, it, it fades when it dries, and then you, you hold it up to light again, and, it, and it's, it's there. It's, it's invisible ink. So Wheeler surmised that by coating himself in lemon juice, that he would be invisible. And to his credit, he attempted to test his theory by taking what might be one of the first selfies with a Polaroid camera, and the, the picture didn't turn out. And we can only assume that he is as bad of a photographer as he is a bank robber. He was wearing the juice. He thought no one would know his identity, that no one would see him. You know, there is an old saying that a little knowledge can be dangerous. The most of us, we just don't know what we don't know. There's a, an interesting study that shows that, that those with the least amount of knowledge often rank themselves the most capable at whatever task or whatever knowledge we're looking at. That the more you know, you actually lose confidence because you know how much you don't know. You know how much there is to learn. Before we get into the, the story that Jesus gave us or the, the, the story Mark was relaying about Jesus' identity, there's, a, there's an interesting healing passage just ahead of this one. It's the only one of its kind. And we can only assume that Mark leaves it there for a very specific reason. Jesus comes across a man who is blind, who is asking to have his sight restored. And that's, that's normal. That comes up in the Gospels multiple times. 
What's different about this story is Jesus heals him initially and asks how he can see. And he looks out and, and everything is blurry. That the people don't quite look right. They look like blurry trees wandering around. It's, it's, it's only a partial restoration of sight. Jesus restores his sight again, this time to its fullest. Without a doubt, Mark is making a point that even the disciples, as we see in this, in this passage, in this conversation with Jesus, though that they had been spending all of this time with him, they still only saw Jesus in part. He was like a blurry tree walking around among them. He sort of understood. They kind of got the point, but not quite. Just who is this Jesus guy? Why don't we take a look? Good teachers. I mean, we, I hope, have all been blessed at some point throughout our academic lives, whether, whether it was your, your primary, your first school teacher, someone in Sunday school, a university professor, a trade school person, a, a person on the job, I hope that at some point, you would fondly look back on at least one person and say they were an excellent teacher. I have a couple. I think back of, of one in my, my elementary years. Her name is Mrs. Lawrence. And, and she was actually a, a, a long-term sub. My, my teacher that year in grade, um, I want to say four, was, uh, was on maternity leave. And she was warm and she was kind. And I remember one week we... Uh, uh, a popcorn monster invaded our classroom. And I didn't know what that was. I just know that the back, the back cupboards that had always held our art supplies were, were dutifully taped with masking tape and scotch tape and warning signs had been, had been posted everywhere that there was a popcorn monster and we were not allowed to touch that. One, one recess, we went out and we came back and the entire room had exploded with popcorn and footprints everywhere. It was a fun day. I also remember that she was probably the only person, uh, aside from my mother, who was determined to make my penmanship better. They both failed miserably, <laughs> but I really appreciated the effort. They gave me this doodad that I had to put on my pencil that forced me to hold it properly, and I hated every second of it, but I think about it every time I pick up a pen now. In high school, I had two, two uh, teachers... Um, who were, were both just a hair's breadth away from retirement. One taught economics and the other taught history, and they were, they were the best of friends, but the kind of friends that, that just loved to aggravate each other. And it was without a doubt that one of them would pop into the other's classroom at some point throughout the day to do something. One of them, when they were decorating for Christmas, saw that they felt that they were outdone, so Mr. Uh, O'Neill, seeing that uh, his door was no longer the best one, required his entire economics class to leave the room and to not come back until they had stripped a few pine trees bare with branches to redecorate to win the challenge. They taught in narrative. I learned history as if it was stories. I learned more about King Leonidas and the Persian Wars in grade 10 than I ever did through university. They were good teachers, quirky and fun. They were good. I don't know if they were good people. I really didn't know them outside of their classroom. I just know that they were 
good educators. See, Jesus asked, what are the people around saying that I'm like? Who are the people saying that I am? And most of the people thought that Jesus was a, a prophet, maybe on par with one of the Old Testament prophets. A few were willing to go out on a limb and say, there is this prophecy that Elijah would come back. I mean, maybe Jesus is that. There were a few that thought, well, we have two, you know, reports of two men going around and, and calling about the kingdom of God and John the Baptist and Jesus. Maybe, maybe we've just gotten our wires crossed and, and, and Jesus escaped from Herod uh, uh, John escaped from Herod, sort of rebranded as Jesus and, and carried on. Some people had wondered, again, if he was an Old Testament prophet or, or a prophet in that, in that vein. Few wondered. All this is to say is that most people thought Jesus was important. Absolutely important. Most people thought he needed to be taken seriously. But almost everybody thought he fit neatly into a category that they already had for him. He was, a, he was a prophet for sure. Uncommon, but still not spectacular. We've had prophets before. But lest we think that this is something that the ancient world did, that, that we have since moved past, we haven't. People still have a tendency to look at Jesus and see if he can't fit comfortably into one of our existing boxes and worldviews. And the fact that we, we do this with almost every existing worldview is incredible. Some people would make a, make a startling case or a, a strong case that, that Jesus was a socialist or a feminist or a Republican, or a Democrat, or a cynic, or an on and on and on and on. So often, we attempt to fit Jesus into a, an existing category. He's on our side for sure, but he's in our box. If Jesus can fit neatly into my life and my worldview, with no challenge to what I do, think, or say, what that means is I am elevating the things that Jesus said and did that I agree with, that, that I can interact with easily, but I am minimizing the things that Jesus says that challenge me, that shake me, that rattle me. See, Jesus' message is meant to be life-altering, and that is true no matter what kind of life you are currently leading. You know, we all have expectations. We all do. We all have expectations on how we, we anticipate that people will behave in certain situations. One of the ones that is, I think, pretty common for this, uh, this neck of the woods, this, this piece of the earth, is we tell children to make sure you, you clean off your plate. That when someone serves you food, you eat it all. And it's in particularly important if you are a guest at someone's house, that even if you don't like it, the polite thing to do is to eat every bite and leave nothing behind with a smile and you say thank you. Those are the expectations that we give, that that's how polite people interact around the dinner table. 
A friend of mine uh, named Adam told a story once that I, that I like to think back and forth when, when he was visiting friends that came from a different culture that had different expectations and different sets of rules. You see, here on East Coast, a good Canadian kid, we, we empty our plate because we are polite. They came from India. And in India, an empty plate means you are still hungry. And here was the dilemma. He ate all of his food, the plate was empty, job well done, expectation given. The moment his plate was emptied, more food appeared. He emptied that plate. And then the next one. (laughs) And then the fourth plate. (laughs) And finally, when he was attempting to get through the fifth plate of curry, which I can't imagine what that did to his body later, he just, he had to yield. He left feeling sick, and his host thought him perhaps a bit of a pig. Our expectations were unmet because we, we thought it would go one way, and it went another. No one knew how to check. See, Jesus here turns the question away from what do the crowds say I am or who I am to what do you say I am? And Peter, speaking for the entire group, says the exact right thing. You are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the person that we have been waiting to, that, uh, that was come from God, that was promised. Jesus commended him for it. Absolutely. You wouldn't have had that piece of wisdom if God didn't give it to you. You are correct. Jesus accepts the title. And then he does something that Peter and the rest of the disciples absolutely did not expect. He began to talk about dying. He began to talk about losing a struggle to the Romans, to the religious authorities. See, the Messiah is supposed to transform the worship structure. They are supposed to beat away the corrupt government. They are supposed to restore Israel to what it was in its heyday of David and Solomon. That was what the Messiah was supposed to do. You see the crowd, you see Peter, Peter and the disciples, they really were only partly sighted. They absolutely saw Jesus as the Messiah, but they didn't quite understand what that meant yet and what that was going to do for them. And it's easy to find ourselves in this same boat you know, one of, the, one of the biggest struggles that I think we have now is not whether Jesus is going to die. We, we know that. We know that he died and, and rose again and, and lives now. We, we have gotten that. But one of the biggest struggles that I think that we have is there is this thought that accidentally permeates our belief that says that if I come to God in faith, if I trust Jesus with my life, then life should be in some way easy. That temptation should not be among us. That failure should not really happen. That doubt is something that really shouldn't creep into our lives. And and when all of these things inevitably happen, because they all will, we begin to worry that maybe we're doing something wrong, and so we're quiet about it. I mean, Jesus did promise that his yoke is light and easy. But that meaning, his meaning was that he wasn't going to require us to jump through a series of hoops and hurdles 
to come to him in faith. In this passage here, we were reminded that he says that if you choose to follow me, if you come and, and be my follower, that you would have to take up your cross. Maybe Jesus' words in John have it the best. So I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. See, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. It's important for us to see what Jesus is talking about, especially to those first disciples when he says, if you are going to follow me, you are going to need to take your cross and follow me. Because it is natural for us to, uh, to shift that into a, a flowery, symbolic language. And it's true. There is truth in that, that we may have to metaphorically take up our cross and follow him. But those first disciples, there was no metaphor in this. There was no parable in this. Most of them following Jesus cost them their very earthly lives. And barring their earthly lives, it cost them their very earthly freedoms. It was a costly and important endeavor that they went on. They absolutely had trouble. But they believed that Christ had overcome the world. So they were willing to endure it. You know, it's Super Bowl Sunday, and I am not going to pretend to know anything about football, because you, you would see right through me. I, I am told that the Patriots win a lot, and there are a number of people who are really annoyed by that, but, but that's all I know. What I know that there are, there are fans here of the sport, and that you're looking forward to it tonight. Actually, what I really want to tell you about is is probably the worst sermon I ever heard. And, and I say that not to pick on the person who gave it, because there are, there are lots of times when I've stepped on the platform and given a sermon, and I stepped down and went like, well, I just wasted everybody's time. <laughs> so I get it. They happen. The worst sermon I ever heard was, was when I was out of the city one day, and the preacher was, was excited about what he was talking about. And he was talking about sport. And he was talking about how much fandom we attribute to our, to our sports teams and how much, especially men, are willing to get emotionally engaged and impacted by sport. That we will jump and cheer, that we will jeer and boo, that we will, we will ride the gambit of that wave of excitement so that we can be fanatical about sports. And then the, the turnabout that you, you may expect, he says, what we need to be it's fanatical for Jesus. Now, putting aside that the word fanatical is not the way that I would describe a healthy faith and that it has some pretty negative consequences, this passage in Mark reminds us of something incredibly important. See, Jesus didn't call us to be his enthusiasts. He didn't call us to join on to his, his cheer team. He didn't ask us to stand on the sidelines and be fans. What he asked us to be is followers. Followers are something wholly different. I don't want to labor this point, but there are lots of people who are absolutely enthusiastic for Jesus. 
I mean, they will happily read everything that he ever said. And they will happily go to the places where he has talked most about. And they will happily sing songs about him. And all of those things are excellent things to do. And I would never tell you otherwise. But they can't be the only things that we do. You see, my biggest worry is that it is uh, that we would accidentally communicate the idea that we can be 100% fully committed followers of Christ while we remain comfortably seated. And we can't. I don't want to leave you with the sense that you can live out your faith without ever moving a muscle, be it at church or be it at home. Jesus calls us to be followers, to take up crosses, to deny ourselves, and to serve others. When Jesus invited us to follow, he invited us to follow a Messiah who died and rose again. He invited us to live a model of self-sacrifice. What do we do if we miss this? If we miss Jesus teaching about the Messiah who lives, dies as self-sacrifice, and lives again, at best, we see Jesus as if he were a blurry image, fitting neatly into our lives and challenging us little. At worst, we don't really see him at all, and instead we begin to follow something of our own creation. Who is this Jesus guy? He is the Messiah who lived, who died, who lived again, and who asks us to live likewise. Thank you for listening to the Stephen George Baptist Church podcast. I hope what you listened to was helpful. If you enjoyed it, consider liking, subscribing, or sharing this podcast. You can find us on Facebook, or if you are in the Dartmouth, Nova Scotia area, we would love to see you some Sunday. Again, thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.